A reading from the book of Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. God. The kids are invited to kids' church. Beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare a way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths before him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. This is our first Sunday. Um, there's two Sundays, two traditionally sort of associated with John the Baptist, but this is the first one. Um, and John the Baptist's appearance at um, Advent and Christmas time is sort of, we get it, it's expected, um, but it's also kind of weird um, because he's got this way of sort of being disjointed with time sort of overall. He's bringing a message in a different way and all that. But one of the important things I think that um, people have tried to capture it is if you Think about Christmas. We've got the beginning of Luke's gospel, and maybe if you want to stretch it, the beginning of Matthew and John. Um, if you want to talk about um, Christianity, we talk about Christ, uh, Christmas a lot, but John the Baptist is this figure who plays a pivotal role in all four gospels. Um, somebody, I forget who it was, noted that if you're if you're unwilling to go through John the Baptist on the way to that little town where Jesus is born, you'll probably make it to a little town, but you won't recognize who is born there. That John has this way of preparing the way for us. And so the readings for this Sunday sort of point backwards in some ways, that, that this beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ then starts with Isaiah. And so we hear from Isaiah in a combination with Malachi and um in the beginning of Mark, and then we jump back um, to Isaiah in our readings today and back to the psalm, and the psalm of forgiveness as well, which is this baptism that John proclaims. Now, as uh, is likely to happen after church for pastors, it seems like people ask um, good questions. Um, so Ryan came up to me after church last Sunday. He didn't ask a good question. Don't give him any credit for this. Um, <laughs> Um, and it, me and him were just um, chit-chatting a little, but Michaela, one of the Cowan girls, came up, and she said to me, hey, Pastor Matt, and I was like, yes, you must have some simple thing I can answer right now. And she was like, how would I explain Advent to my atheist friends? 
like, well, you know, on the spot. Um, I think my first reaction, and Brian might be able to confirm this, is I was like, I don't think you do. Um, I, I'm not sure if, if somebody was like, hey, I'm an atheist. Could you explain Advent to me as the place I'd go, oh, you're clearly on the path to salvation here. Um, you know, don't you want to know about how the cross works or, or who God is or um, what Jesus comes and does for us or, you know, what Christians are about? Um, and I, uh, she was eager, she's not here today, um, but was looking at me like, I expect you to, to say something more than I don't think I would do that. Um, uh, and that got me to thinking, and this is part of this Sunday sermon, I think might be in, in that idea of like, how do we think about what we do and what we're awaiting in a world of people who don't believe, which is common. I mean, there are people who don't believe throughout this world and people who didn't believe throughout the ancient world, although less so, they more likely believed in different things than didn't believe. Um, but what does it mean to say, hey, well, Christmas is coming, and again, that would have been an easier question. How do I explain Christmas to my atheist friend? Well, it's the beauty of God with us. Um, how do I explain Advent, um, this arrival? Um, I went, and I think... Uh, I think I joked with Brian after she left. There's this comedian who's not that great, Daniel Tosh, but he was talking about how people were offended by, like, God and everything. And he was like, so when an atheist sneezes around me, I try to get in really fast. Nothing happens when you die. Um, like, instead of God bless you, because that would be offensive, um, it's, it's better to just, you know, um, to appreciate where they are in life and secularism and to announce um, something for them instead of God, God bless you. And so... Um, that's a joke answer, but my point saying that is I think um, we situate ourselves as a people who are awaiting something. Not all that is, is everything. If you're an honest atheist, not, not an agnostic, an agnostic would say more along the lines of, I'm not sure if there's anything else. But if Michaela's friend um, is, is a, a hardened or, or true atheist in some sense of the way, it, it would be helpful to say what we get together and do during this time is become a people who can acknowledge that there is more than there seems to be. Because if there's nothing else, I think you fall into this materialism, not materialistic sort of like consumerism, although that might be one of the options you choose um, when you realize there, if, if you're willing to confess there's nothing, you might be willing to say, buy all you can, sleep with everybody you can, and die because that's the best way to live. But I think you end up surrendered to this materialism that says every inch now needs to be contested or fought over or proclaimed sort of towards me or towards whatever I think my highest good might be. Because if it's not, there is no other word. The Christian, and I think Christians struggle to remember this, which is why we, Advent is good for us, there's always another word. It's not always that we have to have every word worked out. And notably in the Psalms and in um, John the Baptist today, there's this idea of forgiveness, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins or the forgiveness that the psalmist proclaims. And if you think in a flattened 
sort of material worldview, forgiveness, I think, becomes more and more useless. Um, For the Christian, I think there's an acknowledgement in which it is useless, and that is why it is so good. Not everything needs to have a use. Um, We don't need to say forgiveness is there for our mental health and prosperity. Um, It may be good for us to let go of things, but forgiveness is there because that word that comes later, that there is something outside of us. But for the hardened atheist, I think forgiveness looks like why. The act has been done. Forgiveness is out there without meaning, without, it's, it's sort of is in the ether to some degree, but it is not material in that way. Um, and this is, uh, I think the, re- the reason why my original answer was no, I wouldn't explain Advent to an atheist, was um, partially because I'm, I'm not super fond of apologetics. Um, now, if you hear me saying what I'm saying is like apologetics, I mean, you would think as an atheist might say, man, I should believe some of that. Um, but I don't think that's what I hope I'm not trying to do, is to say, um, here's what you believe and here's what we believe and here's what, why we believe is better. What I'm trying to say is our belief is that there is something outside of us, beyond us, that opens up different pathways and different possibilities. And in Advent, we situate ourselves into awaiting that. So last week we heard that word, that we keep watch for that one. First Sunday of Advent, more than the other three, all four of them are about um, sort of the second coming as much as they are about the first coming. This, this, they're, they're about this renewed Jesus coming again and setting up his kingdom here on earth that we await. But certainly the first one is primarily about the second coming. You get... 30-year-old Jesus walking around telling people to keep watch and keep alert for the master is about to come. And so I was thinking about um, the famous play, Waiting for Godot, in which they're sort of waiting and nothing ever happens and Godot's never going to show up. Almost at the end, they contemplate suicide and they're like, oh, we don't have a rope. And so they disband to come back another day. Um, Again, not trying to use that apologetically, but in some sense, like the Christian is awaiting someone they expect to come. Good waiting for Godot is sort of this parable about the modern world in which we like, can't ever sort of see what we're, we're waiting for. Um, but the Christian, as we come for Advent, we say we await that one, and not hopelessly. Um, that, I think, is one of the things that often shows up in, in waiting for Godot is the sense in which we're just um, sputtering away our time. But our time as we come for Advent is captured in something. It's captured in this hopefulness. It's captured in this waiting and watching. It's captured in this sense of forgiveness that we heard this Sunday. Or this preparation for this one who's going to be here. And so, um, let's see, what was the... Oh, these, this is the, the collect for this Sunday, which is on the back of the bolt again. Like I said last Sunday, if you rip it out and put it someplace else in your house during this season to remember the Advent season. Last Sunday's was different. Um, but these are good prayers that I think bring to mind what we talk about on Sunday, but also can deepen the season as we sort of live disjointed in time. The last Sunday, the quote on the back of the bulletin was, what other time or season can or will the church have ever but that of Advent? Um, And so, 
Michaela's question takes on a better point because I just said, what time or what season, quoting Karl Barth, will we have other than Advent for her to come up and say, to explain Advent to atheist friends is like, I set myself up for that one. So we're never using this quote again. Um, and blaze it in your memory today. Um, no. Um, but what he means is that this season of waiting captures where the church is. And when we forget about the season of waiting, this is where we can, um, Isaiah uh, is going to set up God as both strong and shepherd um, at the end of what um, Chris read for us. If we forget that we're in the season of waiting, sometimes, and this happens in the world, but it happens to the Christian as well, we can only look for strong sometimes, only one more powerful to sort of like bind and make everyone punish, or we look for, in some ways, the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate sort of teddy bear, the ultimate sort of um, relaxing thing. Um, This is... uh, it came to mind this week because you, you can kind of see it two ways in what, I'm trying to think if I want to go here or not. No, we'll skip it. Um, well, it, um, I was thinking about the, uh, well, well, I'll step into it for a second. If you think about colleges today, that they're very much governed by this ultimate shepherd. Like, everything needs to be trigger warning, flattened, this sort of the other. And so, like, there's this bureaucratic sort of thing that exists throughout the world. I mean, exists in many other places. There's this bureaucratic sort of notion of softness of shepherd. But there is no strength there in a lot of ways, which it's supposed to sort of bring about this collective sort of kindness or something like that. Um, But then when you watch the testimony of the presidents on Thursday or Friday, like, is it wrong to condemn genocide? Is it okay for people to call for genocide at your campuses? Which is that strong, right, on the other side. Uh, there's no kindness with that one. Um, we need the genocide of these people is one argument. And then the professor or the presidents were kind of like, then softening back to that bureaucratic state in a weird way. They were like, it depends on the context. Depends on what's being meant. Like, and it, that, I'm not trying to say, like, there's a right answer to all these sort of things, but you can see that tension between, like, strength and, and, and shepherding, even they can't exist together. So in the psalmist, when it says um, love and, and, and justice and faithfulness and this shall kiss and meet, and we shall see the face of it, we just sort of have two different coins of it consistently going in the modern world. And I use that as an example because... It's interesting, but I think it trickles down as so many other things. Where we can have strength, only strength. Or we can have shepherding, only shepherding. Kindness. But, but for God to be one who can be both is an interesting thing. And if you think about unhinging your God from one or the other, you can see this. Um, many people are familiar within the Chronicles of Narnia at the beginning when they say... Um, they ask if, if Aslan, the lion, is safe, who's sort of the Christ figure. They say, no, he's um, not safe, but he is good. Um, and what happens in the last battle, the last one, is that they, they say of this antichrist lion, um, I'm not as familiar with that one, but they say, oh, no, he's not safe. They never proclaim that he's good. Um, or you could see the opposite. It's God is only 
um, good, but there is no risk or warrior or, or something beyond a shepherder within them, which raises a question of what do we do with all that is that isn't supposed to be in the world? War, anger, genocide, oppression, these sort of things um, that you would think would anger someone who cares in the end. And so Christianity holds those things together in a weird way. Um, this was one other question I had. I use this quote every year, and I didn't use it last Sunday on the first Sunday of Advent, and I regret it because I think it gives a different answer to what we might say to the atheist about Advent. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is in prison, um, allegedly for attempting to kill Hitler, which is quite the cause to go to prison for, when you think about it. Um, uh, and he's writing to his friends, and he says, a prison cell like this, this one I am, and is a good analogy for Advent. He says, one waits, one hopes, does this or that, ultimately nageable things, the door is locked, and only can be opened from the outside. For the Christian, for us as we come to Advent, there's the sense in which what we are doing, and we can, we can await and we can prepare, as John the Baptist in last Sunday uh, called us to, but... What we're awaiting ultimately comes from the outside. And so I think when we look at um, the agnostic or atheistic strains, I wouldn't want to say either one, but of our modern world um, between open AI and all these other things, this idea in sort of like um, there is no help coming from the outside. So it's for us to secure and make that place today. Again, this would be a sharp difference, I think. I'm trying to take seriously Mateo's question here is that like the sharp difference between what we're doing and proclaiming we believe in the small stillness that we can and what the world and its atheistic temptations might also be surrendering to is all the help is here. We must do all that we can. Whereas the Christian can say, ultimately, the help comes from the outside. We don't open the door ourselves. There's no amount of technology or something we can use to free ourselves from this world as it is. And so we wait and we pray. We prepare within, as Emily said before, we prepare within our own hearts a place for this when it comes. But ultimately, the door is locked and only can be opened from the outside. There was one other thing I said to her that I think is important to remember about Advent is this way in which we live into the fullness of the story. So oftentimes, and I asked her if she had seen Cinderella because I assume kids don't watch 1950s movies anymore like my parents made me watch too, but she had, so that was great. But I had said, you know, if you said the end of Cinderella in which they sort of like the shoe fits, they live happily, this, that, and the other, it's the whole story. What is Cinderella about? Well, it's about a princess who gets a shoe that fits. She lives happily with the prince forever. You wouldn't actually be telling the story, right? There's an evil stepmother. There's um, evil stepsisters. There's um, godmothers and... or. Fairy godmothers, yeah, who come and help. There's all these things that go into that story. Um, and then there's risk. Like, you know, in the description I gave at first, like the bell tolls and she has to leave at midnight. She's finally danced with him. And so like, what will come of that? 
So to tell the story, you have to live into all of it. You have to live into the batteredness. You have to live into the hope. You have to live into the hope lost as she loses the shoe. And you have to live into um, that final resolution. What we do in Advent, as we tell ourselves the story, um, I'm not sure how helpful this would be for the atheist, is we live into the fullness of it. We don't, as Christians, just live as if Jesus has returned in the sense of which we then deny everything else. Paul has this great passage um, where there are people who are refusing to work because they're like, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, and Paul, in his compassionate wisdom, says, if you don't work, you don't eat, Um, um, which is the sense in which um, these people were so bound up in pretending like the world that was promised to us in Christ was already here, they were unwilling to participate in it in the present. In many ways, the New Testament closes that option to us. That we live into it in its frustrations, in its struggles. And so Advent, for us, is a time where we rehearse, and the church calendar hopefully is doing this, rehearse the fullness of the story so the light of its goodness can shine all the brighter. We rehearse it and invite it into our hearts so that we can see all of the stories so that its fullness will take over and be proclaimed in our lives. Um, So that's a little bit on how I might attempt to explain Advent to an atheist. But we'll look at that in light of the passages today. Um, We'll start with the psalm, actually, which I believe I have up here as well. Yeah, this is the end of the psalm. Um, The psalm for this Sunday from Psalm 85 is split into two parts, one in which we don't read. Um, But it says, You, O Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the inequities of your people and covered all their sins. First off, I love about this psalm is that you showed your favor, Lord, to your land. The gospel is big news. Oftentimes, we can separate it into just the soul's work. But if you read the New and Old Testament, what God is doing is bringing about a renewal or a new of all creation. It's not just what happens within us, but there's this whole um, renewing of the cosmos, of the world, that Christ and his work is bound up in. And so then comes the forgiveness for the sins You forgave the inequity of your people, and you covered all their sins. In verse 4, we didn't read, by the way, comes to us again the cry from last week's psalm, Psalm 80. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. This call to be restored again by God, to have ourselves restored. And it proclaims this new reality of forgiveness in this psalm. But it picks up again where we have up on the screen, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness brings forth from the earth. The righteousness looks down from heaven. It's this way in which these different things are coming together in one. The reason we read it today is for, for the Christian, 
the meeting of these things comes together and all in Jesus Christ, who comes together, who comes among us as God, Emmanuel. It begins after this, the Lord will indeed what is good and your land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. The psalm sees this forgiveness that John is going to proclaim. It's sort of this way of sort of renewal again to the path in which we shall be on. And one of the things, you know, this, I don't know if this would work with atheists as much as, as, as it does. I don't know if it works at all. Um, but I was thinking, one of the things that the second Sunday of Advent might proclaim is y'all need a bath. Um, it's this way in the sense in which we all need some renewal inside of us. We need to hear of forgiveness. We need to go out to the wilderness. We need to take in the story. Like There's this whole way in which we all need to be confronted again with this reality. As we move into Isaiah and, and John's call in the wilderness too, there's this dumbing uh, down of the senses that we all get to participate in the modern world whether it's through the endless, I saw this past week that um, people streamed more content on TikTok than they did on Netflix, um, which isn't, um, I just think of the numbingness that can come through that. So if you think about Netflix, you actually put on a show you want to watch, unless you're doing Netflix roulette, which I'd be interested to see how that turns out for you. Although the algorithm is very smart, but with, but with TikTok, um, you're in some sense surrendering yourself to like the other thing. And if you're watching a TV show or a sporting event, your mind might wander, but when you're consumed into the constant sort of ticking of the one thing, it's hard for even for your mind to wander. This isn't to just pick on those who use TikTok, but to say from that to sporting events to everything else that we have these ways in which, um, to addictions, to consumerism, we have all these ways in which we can dim and numb ourselves to reality as it is. We all need a bath, some cold water to bring about the reality as we see it. It's one of the things we try to protect it at our church, hopefully during, prayerfully during Advent, is that we can hear that through all the noise, through all the things that are ramping up that in our world today. I don't know if you noticed, maybe it happens every year, but it seemed like Black Friday started November 2nd this year, um, uh, which was like great. Now we have Black Friday season. It's not just a day, it's a season. Um, and then, like everybody else, I was like, is this the time to get the best deal on whatever I'm looking after? Um, best to have two months for that rather than just one. Um, and then to be disappointed when you get it, which is part of the neuroses that we live in. Which brings us to Isaiah, funny enough, um, as, as it always does um, when you talk about those things. Um, Isaiah 1 through 39, 39 chapters are predominantly bad news. Um, 
There are ways in which the people have turned away. The people have found themselves um, abandoning by God, given over to his judgment for the ways in which they have left and gone astray, in which they have turned to other gods and other paths, and they reap the judgment for that. But Isaiah 40, which people call second Isaiah, breaks forth in a different way. It begins with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort, comfort my people. From 40 to the end of the book is predominantly more of this good news of the restoration that God is going to do. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. For the church, for Israel, the biblical Israel I'm referring to now, and for our souls, proclaim to that place that hard service has been completed. That her sin has been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Proclaims an end to that which was. Comfort, I spent a lot of time looking up this week because it sounds so weak to me. And one of the commentators I was reading about what said, does comfort sound really weak? And I was like, yes. So it does. Now, I don't know... Um, I'm not an etymologist, which I believe is the right word, um, but this um, comfort is uh, with strength, literally, in, um, in English, um, with strength. And then the Hebrew is more dynamic, too. Sometimes it's translated repentance and all these other words, like comfort, comfort my people. It's not just sit with them, but it's sit with them because God is opening new realities for them. So yeah, when I hear comfort, comfort my people, it's like um, uh, <laughs> the Simpsons where uh, Homer says, this is the worst day ever, and he says, no, it's the worst day of your life so far. Um, um, like that that's the type of comfort, like, hey, look, you know, worst things are going to happen. You'll, you'll get over this. Um, and so you sit with somebody in comfort in their naivete about what they're going through. But with the biblical comfort here being talked about is sitting with somebody as you're opening up new pathways and places for them to go. The word that comes in the rest of this passage is this renewal of a whole new world. It opens up different pathways for the people to go. Um, What has been is beginning to cease. It goes to the voice calling in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths in the desert a highway of our God. And there'll be this great leveling. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain shall be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The comfort that comes. John the Baptist is bringing in his words and what the prophet Isaiah is bringing in his, although this is God's word in this sense, is is to say a whole new world is going to come about in which you will see the glory of the Lord. A voice cries out, what shall I cry? All the people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of our God endures forever. 
I don't know, it, it may be hard to hear the good news in that, but the good news is so good, which is in the sense in which our efforts may become beautiful flowers. And if you've tried to keep a beautiful flower alive, you know it's a losing battle in time. It inevitably dies. What comes from the change that the people are waiting is not a change in their own ability. Again, the help comes from the outside. It's a change now in that it comes from the word of the Lord. It comes from this that never fails. Again, maybe if you were describing to the atheist, um, you can store up good things, you can have a good bank account, you can even try to enact what you might call goodness and justice in your world. But it all fades, and it will all end, and there's no guarantee it comes out some other way. For us, naive as it might be, wrong it may be, but our hope is not that we can sustain it all and keep the flowers green and alive forever, but that the word of something beyond us is the stability of that. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and, his rep- and the recompense that accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in the arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads to those who have rung. That we are gathered up in this. Oh yeah, in the previous verse, which ends with this uh, pro- proclamation, which is similar to John's, which is, here is your God. The despair of Judah, which is what the people are experienced, is overcome because here is your God. The despair of your own sinfulness, of your own anger, of your own hiddenness, of your own in which you, um, ways in which you sow your destruction comes in the own ways in which you f- resist forgiveness is overcome with this phrase, here is your God. More possibilities are capable or to translate it into the language of Babel. See, it's not just our own actions. The ways in which we're surrounded in ways in which it's hard to be human. We're surrounded in divisions that sometimes make it hard for us to love one another. We're surrounded um, in a world that is in conflict in so many ways. And what those powers here and what we put our faith in is here is your God. Which brings us to Mark just briefly. Um, Mark has this beautiful introduction to his gospel that is incredibly short. Um, in the beginning, uh, the beginning. Uh, this is the um, Greek word, beginning, that is the same as the one in the Old Testament in the Greek translation. Here is the genesis of the good news um, We've talked about this phrase before, but um, evangelion, the good news about Jesus Christ. Um, So here is in the beginning, which you would be hearing the book of Genesis. Here is this evangelion, which uh, Mark does this amazing thing because you would think Mark sets out to write a biography. Most modern people come to the Gospels as if they are the biographies of Jesus. But by attaching this word, evangelion, which Paul will use endlessly as well, evangelion in the ancient world is not a Christian word. It's this word which most often connotates good news from a battlefield. Here is the good news from the battlefield about Jesus Christ. 
it's, it's this Sunday, and I think often in Advent, and it's important to remember, I think it's Kim Teller who coined this phrase, but before the gospel is advice, it's news. Before you're asked to do anything, you have to hear the news from the battlefield about Jesus Christ. And it is rich news as we hear about it. About Jesus, the Messiah, that would be more um, Jewish in what they're hoping, and then the Son of God, which combines the sort of like the world together in this phrase. This is written in the Isaiah the prophet, which we walk through. And will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And we're told about John who proclaims this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This bath for the forgiveness of sins to waking up to the reality of what Christ is going to do. So too as we await the second coming, that's us. We awaken our senses, hopefully during the season when everything wants to turn our senses down. Confessing their sins, they were baptized in the River Jordan. John comes out of time and place, wearing camel's hair with a leather belt and eating locusts and wild honey. But here is his message. Here's where we'll end this Sunday because I think it is the word that might be the answer um, to the atheist friend. And here is his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. we have this chance to have water. We've received, through what Christ has done, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's important for us to hear this Sunday that we still await the fullness of that one. After all of us comes one more powerful than I. One who am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Let us pray. God, may you awaken our senses. May we prepare in our hearts and in our lives a place for the Lord as he comes and as we await his coming in the world. May we, that is hard to do, be captured by the sense that there is help coming from the outside. Our lives are not the sum of what we can buy. Our lives are not the sum of what we can win or consume. But our lives can become captured in such a way, prepared in such a way, that we are looking towards one who is stronger than I, one who brings a fullness that lasts till the end.